0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Deputy Director here. I'm very pleased to have the Right Honourable Victoria Prentice KC MP here for a keynote speech and discussion. Um, The rule of law is a fundamental principle in a constitutional democracy, but in recent years, it has been the subject of much debate, whether it's headlines over our international treaty obligations, uh, to clashes in the courts over, for example, most recently, uh, the judgment on Rwanda, there does appear to have been a fair bit of friction between politics and the law. And the minister acting at the intersection of politics and the law is, of course, the Attorney General. Uh, Victoria was called to the bar in 1995 and worked as a government lawyer until 2015 uh, when she became an MP. Since then, she's been a junior minister in DEFRA and DWP before becoming the Attorney General last November. Um, now, as the Attorney General, as I'm sure you all know, uh, Victoria is the chief legal adviser to the Crown. She advises government on both domestic and international law and oversees the law departments, uh, which include, of course, the Crown Prosecution Service, the Serious Fraud Office and the GLD, the Government Legal Department. So we're going to start with a keynote speech from Victoria, then we'll have some discussion between us, and I'll make sure I leave time for questions. Uh, we'll be tweeting from at uh, IFG events as usual and using the hashtag #IFG, IFG Attorney General, so please do tweet along. If you have questions and you're watching us online, hello to everybody online, please do submit them any time from now. Victoria, hopefully I've given you enough time to catch your breath, now uh, <laughs> over to you. Um, First of all, I should start by saying
1: I'm so sorry to be late. It's fairly obvious to people in the room, but will not be at all obvious to those following online, that London um, is enjoying, A, some very nice seasonal weather, but also some lovely marching bands who I think have showed up for President Biden. And it means that passage around this part of London, uh, whether in a car or on foot, is really very difficult. So we ended up walking about three times longer than it would normally take to do a very short journey, Um, so I'm so sorry. I thought at one point we were never going to get through the procession. But I am genuinely delighted to be invited to speak to the Institute for Government on one of the fundamental principles of our constitutional democracy, the rule of law. I think the Institute for Government, as, as all of us here would agree, undertakes important work to make the UK government more effective through research, through open discussion and through fresh thinking. As a former government lawyer and public servant, I very much respect the work of the Institute for Government with its aim of promoting better and more effective government in the widest sense. As Emma has said, I spent my career in public law with 17 years in what is now the Government Legal Department. During this time and my time in Parliament, I hope I've learnt something about better and more effective government. I've been fortunate to work with some extraordinary people who have moved this debate on. Lord Simon, as I would call him, Brown, of Eton under Hayward, whose death we mourn, was at the forefront of these discussions. In particular, I've learned about the important contribution that each arm of the state, parliament, ministers and the courts makes. Government is always at its best and most efficient when each arm of the state has a respectful relationship with the others. Like all long-term relationships, and it's certainly fair to say it has been a long one, it isn't always easygoing and it can get a bit tense but it is the relationships founded on respect and trust that survive. A healthy relationship isn't just good for the parents, and there are three parents in the family we're discussing here, it's good for the wider family too. Respectful relationships are also good for the people to whom we bear a weighty responsibility. We need to be good guardians of our democracy and our democratic institutions. So what does a grown-up and respectful relationship look like? This is where government and the other arms of the state work together with respect for each other and each other's respective roles to provide people with sufficient clarity, certainty and predictability so that they can regulate their behaviour and plan ahead. In turn, this contributes to the economic and social well-being of the country. Clarity, certainty and predictability are all qualities, not only of effective government, but the rule of law itself. I want to recognise the importance of the rule of law and the role of each branch of the state has to play in upholding it and in ensuring effective government. I'll then explore some recent judgments of our domestic courts, which might reveal the workings of this relationship and when the relationship is working at its most effective. As I said when I was sworn in before the Lord Chief Justice my focus as Attorney General is upholding the rule of law, but what is the rule of law, it is in one sense one of the most elusive constitutional principles. It's sometimes been described as a nebulous or contested concept. Many great lawyers and academics have grappled with trying to define it and indeed written whole books on the subject. So uh, in conclusion, I decided we needed another speech. Um, I certainly wouldn't put myself in, in their number. But as I said to the House of Lords Constitution Committee a couple of weeks ago, Each of the eminently qualified witnesses who'd given evidence on this to the committee had offered subtly different definitions. I'm certainly not gonna come up with the perfect definition this morning. However, I do consider that there are certain key elements of the rule of law upon which most, I hope, can agree. The rule of law is the principle that the law applies equally to everyone, that no one is above the law, and in particular that the government must comply with the law if that power is not to be exercised arbitrarily. It requires that all persons have access to courts that are independent. These courts must resolve disputes objectively in accordance with legal principles. Laws should be accessible, intelligible, clear and predictable. I do think it's important to acknowledge differences in conceptions of the rule of law particularly where that relates to international obligations. Wider conceptions of the rule of law, such as that advanced by Lord Bingham, include compliance by the state with its obligations in international law and the guarantee of basic fundamental rights, such as the right to a fair trial, open justice and freedom of speech. Those who prefer a narrower definition do not consider these aspects to be required by the rule of law while there is a conceptual debate about whether the rule of law includes compliance with international law and my own view in that debate for what it's worth aligns with lord bingham it's certainly clear that the uk must comply with its international obligations and an important part of my role is to ensure that we do so given that the rule of law is so fundamental to our society this raises a question who is responsible for upholding it Parliament, the executive in the form of ministers, and the judiciary all have vital roles to play in this. And much in the way that each parent plays their own role and brings their own strengths to a role, so too do Parliament, the executive, and the courts. Parliament determines what the law will be and the powers that are granted to government and to other public bodies. The scrutiny of legislation by both houses improves lawmaking. The executive must act in accordance with their powers, whether statutory or prerogative, and these must not be exercised arbitrarily. Finally, an independent judiciary ensures that the government exercises its powers in accordance with the law. Judges rightly uphold the work of government when it acts within its powers and prevent overreach when it does not. Each of these branches of government contribute in their own right to the rule of law and effective government. However, as Lord Thomas outlined in his speech to this institute in 2014, these branches contribute to the rule of law in their own right and in relationship to one another. But before I consider the very important relationship between the branches of government and between the two arms in particular, I'd like first to consider my role as attorney general in relation to the rule of law. As Attorney General for England and Wales, and Advocate General for Northern Ireland, I am the government's chief legal adviser, and alongside the Lord Chancellor, I'm responsible for upholding the rule of law within government. I'm a lawyer first and a politician second. This involves providing advice to the government. Occasionally, it involves advice to the monarch and to parliament. Sometimes, it involves making yourself unpopular, by telling other ministers that they cannot pursue certain policies and legislation because these are incompatible with the law. It's for this reason that my predecessors have not always enjoyed themselves. Sir Patrick Hastings in the 1920s said it was his idea of hell. Francis Bacon in the 17th century described it as the painfullest task in the realm. Eight months into the role, I'm still maintaining it's an honor and a privilege, though not always an easy one. The law officers, with the help of their officials, scrutinise legislation before a bill is introduced to make sure that it is, of course, lawful and that there is a strong policy justification for any retrospectivity. The most well-known function of the law officers is to advise the government on the lawfulness of proposed policies or actions. Our excellent government lawyers carry most of the burden where an issue is particularly legally or politically sensitive. The law officers may be asked on occasion to give difficult or unwelcome advice but of course all the lawyers in the room are familiar with the feeling of giving difficult or unwelcome advice i return if i may to my analogy of parenting making yourself unpopular when telling children what they cannot do when you know it's in their best interest not to take a course of action As a parent, when faced with two young daughters keen on obtaining devices connected to the internet, my approach was to offer them alternative distractions, which is why we still have a ferret called roulette, (laughs) and why, (laughs) why my daughters didn't get smartphones until they'd almost finished school. The law officers, the Solicitor General, the Advocate General for Scotland and I give our advice together where possible. Particularly when advice may be unwelcome, we're keen to act as a three to make sure our advice is clear and there's no dispute as to boundaries. Again, the parenting analogy is helpful, I think, here. It's better to present a united front and clear boundaries so that there's no confusion about what is and isn't allowed. The Law Officers' Convention means the fact that law officers have or have not advised cannot be disclosed outside government without our consent. This enables the government, my ministerial colleagues, to obtain our full and frank legal advice. To do otherwise could lead to our advice not being sought at all. Departments might fear that it would imply that there was uncertainty about a legal position and that that might invite legal challenge. The upshot of this is there will be many instances in which law officers will have advised upon proposed government action, where the public and, of course, the courts will have no knowledge of this. The law officers act as a crucial check within government. Of course, the Attorney General is not the only check on the maintenance of the rule of law within our constitutional system. Our judiciary is fundamental to the principle of open justice by publishing and explaining decisions, by engaging with wider society, and by allowing access to the courts, both in person and more recently by broadcast, judges try very hard to make their work transparent and understandable. Judges are not the enemies of the people, nor indeed of the government. The role of judges is not only to restrain power from being unlawfully exercised, but judges also rightly uphold the work of government when it acts within its powers. Courts exist to uphold the law. They don't exist in a vacuum, nor does parliament legislate in a vacuum. The branches of government exist in relationship to each other and so do do the fundamental principles of our constitutional democracy. As Lord Reed put it so well in, in unison, At the heart of the concept of the rule of law is the idea that society is governed by law. Parliament exists primarily in order to make laws for society in this country. Courts exist in order to ensure that laws by by parliament and the common law are applied and enforced. Parliamentary sovereignty is in a relationship with the rule of law, just as the courts are in a relationship with parliament. Parliament can legislate if it wants, But the flip side of that sovereignty has always been that Parliament has respected the constitutional principle of the rule of law, including the constitutional role of the courts. In our system, Parliament has immense power, but as the cliché goes, with great power comes great responsibility, and Parliament must always be mindful of that. In this sense, Parliament's sovereign power exists in a relationship to the rule of law and in recognition of its responsibility as the elected branch of government. By the same token, the courts must respect the constitutional roles of Parliament and the executive. Some key recent judgments from the Supreme Court on the relationship between the courts, Parliament and the executive have been made in the human rights context. It's worth pausing here to consider the Human Rights Act in more detail and the line it treads to ensure respect for parliamentary sovereignty. The UK is one of the founding members of the Council of Europe and has been a party to the Convention since the 50s. In 1998 Parliament decided to give further effect to the Convention in domestic law through the Human Rights Act. Crucially, it made it unlawful as a matter of domestic law for public authorities to act in a way which is incompatible with a convention right. Parliament elected to take a novel step in its relationship with the courts and directed that legislation be interpreted in a way that's compatible with convention rights. As Lord Sales has put it, Section 3 directs the courts to change the ordinary meaning which would otherwise be given to statutory provisions so far as it's possible to do in order to produce a new interpretation which is compatible with convention rights. To quote Lord Sales again in a lecture he gave only last month, the interpretative obligation authorises a redrafting of statutory provisions by the courts in light of their interpretation of convention rights in tension with the usual expectation that it's for the democratically elected legislator to lay down the law and statutory provisions with a meaning directly given by its own collective intention. This was, as I say, a novel step, but within the Human Rights Act, there are boundaries. Courts can only stretch the interpretation of legislative provisions so far. Where a Section 3 interpretation would go against the fundamentals of the underlying legislation, as Lord Nicholls put it in Gaydon, then the appropriate remedy is a Declaration of Incompatibility under Section 4. This doesn't affect the ongoing operation of the legislation, but leaves the decision on what to do about the incompatibility properly to the executive and to Parliament. There are also boundaries as to how far courts can go, both in interpreting the ambit of Convention rights and in assessing proportionality. As set out by the House of Lords in Ullah, the boundaries for the courts are those rights which the European Court has already recognised. Lord Bingham puts it very clearly in S.B. and Denby High School. The purpose of the Human Rights Act 1998 was not to enlarge the rights or remedies of the Convention, but to enable those rights and remedies to be asserted and enforced by domestic courts of this country. It's not open to the domestic courts to extend or expand Convention rights beyond the bounds established by the European Court of Human Rights. It is, of course, open to Parliament to extend protections further than the European Convention requires, but that's for Parliament, not for the courts. Otherwise, the UK domestic courts are not following Parliament's direction to interpret legislation compatibly. More recently, the Supreme Court has reaffirmed this approach in cases such as SC, AB and Ellen Kane. The margin of appreciation is a principle of interpretation of the Convention based on the need for judicial restraint on the part of the European Court. This margin is founded on the understanding that there may not be consensus among different states on a particular issue, and that there are instances in which national authorities, rather than a supranational court, are better placed to make the relevant assessment this allows states a degree of latitude in relation to their domestic law and practice. The concept's specific to the European court. Nevertheless, domestic courts have tried to apply a similar approach for two good reasons. First, as Lady Hale recognised in Countryside Alliance and Lord Reed has recently affirmed in Ellen Kane, where a domestic court can reasonably predict that Strasbourg would consider a matter within the margin of appreciation, the domestic court should not second-guess the conclusion that parliaments come to. This reflects the principle that the Human Rights Act requires the domestic courts to keep pace with Strasbourg, but no more. Domestic courts ought not to speculate on whether Strasbourg would find a breach. Domestic courts ought not to find a violation unless they're fully confident that the Strasbourg court would find one. To do so would preempt any judgment of the European Court and could end with an expansion of the ambit of Convention rights domestically. Secondly, as explained by Lord Reed in the case SC, domestic courts must respect the relationship between judiciary and parliament and the executive. Social and economic policies are political matters which require a balancing exercise of competing costs and benefits. This is particularly relevant when a court is determining whether an interference with a convention right is proportionate. The approach of the domestic courts is that where the Strasbourg court would allow a wide margin of appreciation to a policy choice, such as an economic and social policy, so too should the domestic court allow a wide margin or a discretionary area of judgment. The case of SC is a very useful illustration of this point. In brief, SC concerned whether differential treatment between families with two children or fewer eligible for child tax credit and families with more than two children where the third and subsequent child were not eligible for child tax credit was compatible. It was accepted that 90% of single parents were women and that single parent families made up a third of families who received child tax credit. The question for the court was whether the differential treatment was compatible, was justified and was compatible with convention rights. It's well established that the court assesses proportionality in four stages. First, the measure must pursue a legitimate aim. Second, the measure must be rationally connected. Third, the aim could not be achieved by less intrusive means. Fourth, the effects of the measure on the convention rights of the people affected must be weighed against the importance of the aim or objective to determine whether the interference strikes a fair balance between the rights of the individual and the wider rights of the community as a whole. The third and fourth stages can be summed up as to whether there is a proportionate means of achieving the aim. This requires the court to carry out a more intensive review of a decision that's normally required by our common law. If that review were not carried out by the domestic courts, it would be carried out in Strasbourg in sc the court accepted that limiting child tax credit to two children of family was rationally connected to the legitimate aim of achieving savings in public expenditure in determining whether the right balance had been struck between the rights of individuals affected and the interests of the whole of com- the rest of the community the court concluded that once parliament had decided that the importance of the objectives pursued by the measure justified despite the differential impact on women it was not for the court to take a different view in sc we see the supreme court recognizing in a domestic setting the wide margin of appreciation afforded to the elected branches of government were this otherwise uk judges would be required to make their own political assessments of the requirements of convention rights That would represent a substantial expansion of the constitutional powers of the judiciary, unauthorized by and at the expense of parliament. I know many judges, and I don't know many who would like to be placed in that position. Inherent in Section 3 is already some degree of legal uncertainty in that the particular words in legislation may not reflect their ordinary meaning once interpreted compatibly with the Convention. However, Section 3, as Parliament intended, and is as properly understood after AB and after Ellen Kane, means that the law is to be interpreted in light of Convention rights as they're understood at that point in time. This not only reflects the proper relationship in international law between the Strasbourg Court and the domestic courts and the parliamentary intention of the Human Rights Act. It also provides stability, certainty and predictability in the law and the approach the court will take in interpreting legislation and upholding the law, which enables citizens and the government to regulate their behaviour. The rule of law, an effective government, requires that the government must comply with the law and that, the ex- that executive power is not exercised arbitrarily. Judicial review has developed significantly over the last 40 years. Now, judicial review is a crucial tool to ensure that the ex- executive operates within the bounds of the power it's been granted. There do, however, remain some instances in which the exercise of executive power is non-justiciable. Where it is justiciable, a light touch review is appropriate in light of the knowledge, responsibilities, and role of the executive. One example of this is the raw prerogative to conclude international treaties and, and agreements, which remains non-justiciable. This reflects the fact that entering into treaties does not extend to altering the law or to conferring rights on individuals. This dualist system is a necessary part of parliamentary sovereignty. A treaty is not part of English law unless and until it's been incorporated into law by legislation through parliament. However, there are circumstances where a treaty has not been incorporated but the courts have determined that the treaty has gained a foothold on the domestic stage. For example, where a minister has considered obligations on the international plane when making a decision, such as the WTO considerations in HMT and Heathrow Airport. Even where that foothold is established, it's appropriate for the courts to allow the executive a margin of appreciation and examine only whether the view adopted by the executive is tenable. This approach was adopted by the courts in the recent UK export finance case. As Lord Sales has pointed out, this approach allows the executive to press for legal interpretations on the international plane to favour the UK's national interests. It also reflects the nature of multinational treaties as creatures of deliberation between states, states which often have contrasting views and different prevailing national circumstances. The domestic court should not be tasked with determining the manner of the UK's compliance with an unincorporated international treaty. As Lord Brown observed in the Cornerhouse case, national courts apply... Applying a more intensive level of review to an unincorporated treaty could have damaging consequences for the UK in its attempts to influence the emerging consensus internationally. It also reflects the fact that states are the principal actors on the international law plane. In the UK constitutional system, it's the role of the executive and not the domestic courts to act on the international plane in the interests of the UK. Of course, this must include the need to uphold the rule of law internationally. One example, which is uppermost in all our minds, is in relation to Russia's actions in Ukraine. Against this backdrop, it's right that the relationship of the domestic courts with the executive is one which respects the need to accord the executive latitude to conduct foreign relations, including by taking positions of international law. This respectful relationship between the courts and the elected branches of government recognises the importance of the rule of law and the role each branch of the state has to play, both in its own right and in relationship to one another, in upholding the rule of law and ensuring effective government. As Attorney General, I remain steadfast in my view that the courts have a vital role in upholding the rule of law, a role which is very much respected by this government. Government, seen broadly, is at its most effective when this respect is mirrored both
0: ways. Thank you, Victoria. I'm going to ask you a few questions, then I'm going to open up to the audience quite quickly um, because I um, want to make sure that everybody has a chance. I think it's fair to say that there has been some tension between government and the legal community recently. What do you make of colleagues of, of politicians describing lawyers as lefty, as woke, as activist, or describing judges as as the blob after the recent Rwanda ruling? And I think about that particularly given what you said about judges not being the enemy. Of government. You know, do you think this causes damage to government? Do you think this causes damage to the legal profession? Well, I feel very strongly that I'm a lawyer. I'm married to a judge <laughs> in the interest of full disclosure.
1: And I'm, I'm very happy also with my identity as an elected politician for, for a pat- particular political party. So I've, I've never seen any tension there myself. I was also, um, by the by, a civil servant and a proud civil servant for 17 years. So as I tried to set out in, in my remarks, I think government works at its most effective when the different pillars work together, mm-hmm. respecting each other and understanding the importance of each. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's lawyers... Um, well, I've heard many distinguished colleagues in the audience talk about it before. Lawyers shouldn't over-identify with their clients. Obviously, I'm in a slightly different position because I'm... Um, Both a member... Well, I attend Cabinet and I am also a lawyer. And as I said, Mm -hmm. I very much view myself as a lawyer first. But it it would be quite wrong
0: to assume that lawyers are the same as their clients Mm -hmm. in the generality of cases. And just picking up on that point about you seeing yourself as a lawyer first, how do you go about in the role of of Attorney General balancing the inherent politics involved in being a member of Cabinet with also being the government's legal advisor?
1: I think it's... um, It's something that comes quite naturally having been a government lawyer. Mm -hmm. So all lawyers have obligations, professional obligations to their governing body and and to the court primarily. um, And uh, all lawyers have to fulfill those obligations while at the same time trying to advise their clients Mm -hmm. in as helpful a way as they can within the law. I think government lawyers have extra duties, and I was—I spent most of my career very much in that context. And um, I view my current role as an extension of of that, if you like. Mm-hmm. So I, I view my—I'm not a member of cabinet, but I do always attend cabinet. Mm-hmm. I'm very much there to make legal points where necessary, and to make sure. In advance, usually, the, the, I talked about the scrutiny of legislation and the way that we have a supervisory role in, in litigation um, to make sure that the, the law is clearly set out so that my colleagues understand it. It's, it's a very common position for lawyers to be in that one. I, I accept that there are extra duties for those in
0: government, but it, it's, it's the same as any other lawyer intrinsically. Thank you. There have also been a spate of uh, judicial review losses in recent weeks for government. We've touched on the Rwanda case already. Um, what do you make of government's failure to, to win the judicial review in the COVID inquiry, WhatsApp, row? and will government be abiding by uh, uh, the ruling? Well, I've been involved in government judicial reviews since
1: I became a pupil in 1995, and I think it's fair to say that the government wins most judicial reviews um, in which it takes part. I I've, I've felt very fortunate to have watched judicial review develop during that now very long time, um, but with regard to the, the recent, the, the judgment we got last week, I think this is illustrative, if you like, of the fact that it's perfectly proper for government to test a novel argument We had not previously been entirely clear on the meaning of the Inquiries Act um, as to what to do with material that was irrelevant. We were able to get some clarity from the court. Um, We were not displeased with all aspects of of the judgment. There was some useful clarification on what would happen to the irrelevant material and whether it will be retained, um, for example, by the inquiry. But truthfully, uh, that's an example of the government using the JR system to, to make sure that the law is clear. And now we will get on and work closely with the
0: inquiry, as you'd expect, and as we should. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to open up to audience questions now. I'm going to take them in three, so please do put your hand up. If you could tell us um, who you are and where you're from, that will be very helpful. I've got one here.
2: Uh, one here, one here. Um, hi, James Bolton-Jones from the NGO Spotlight on Corruption. Um, my question is about the Serious Fraud Office. Um, I think in the Carver-Smith review, there was announced, um, recommended that there would be a, a new framework agreement between the government and the SFO, which I think is going to be announced once the new director's um, in. How will you ensure that the SFO maintains full independence um, whilst also maybe... Uh, Yeah, and and ensuring that there's no sort of greater political oversight in that uh, agreement. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Jacqueline Castles, this is about the um, European Court. Uh, You mentioned Strasbourg in the 1950s, but it seems to me I have a problem with the definition of family life, which came out very much in a refusal of deportation of a murderer after leaving prison uh, and the recommendation for. But it seems to me that it's uh, understandably in Strasbourg in the 1950s and what was going on in Europe and Nazis tearing through the family and so on that I, it does seem to me it's now been uh, interpreted too widely. This particular murderer came out of prison, middle-aged man. He had a mother living in this country and therefore deportation was denied on that basis. I actually wrote to the Home Secretary, one Theresa May at the time, Sorry, you were looking at me because I'm going on. <laughs> okay, it's, it's the definition of family life and the interpretation. Thank you. Thank you. And then one here. Hi, um, Orel Toblam. Um, I'm an undergraduate history student at King's College London, and I'm also the president of the Israel Society. Now, you talked um, quite a lot about the, the working in harmony of different arms of government in order to uphold the rule of law. Um, and one central tenet of that is accountability and in your experience have there been any arms of government that are particularly unwilling to shoulder that sort of accountability to uphold the rule of law? Thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay so we've got the independence yep. of the serious fraud office um, is the definition of um, family life too broad and um, are there any particular parts of government particularly yes. unwilling on rule of law?
1: Uh, well those are really good questions and actually they show um, if i may say so the breadth of the attorney general's role so that there's something for everyone there um, the sfo i was very i was really delighted to be able to announce the appointment of the new director last week nick f grave um, he he as most of you will know has has been a policeman rather than a lawyer and he brings a different form of focus and, and, um, and intensity to that role, which I think will be really useful. He, he impressed us enormously, enormously um, in the run-up to his appointment, and I've been very reassured by his um, statements, both in public and in private, since. So Supervising prosecutors, effectively, is, is a delicate balance. There's no question about that. And it is important that they retain prosecutorial independence. Um, But I think that is perfectly possible. Within the confines of a of a good framework, I'm not. The, the Calvert Smith report was very useful. We're, we're drawing on it um, very intensely at the moment, not least because he made some excellent recommendations about how um, the period of handover should be managed when a new director is in place. So, so that's very much uppermost in our minds. But I think it's fair to say um, the framework will have some some tweaks. But I'm not expecting the fundamentals of it to be um, manifestly different from how we've been running it. It works well at the moment, um, the way we supervise the Serious Fraud Office, and I am really confident that Nick Efgrave will be able... Um, to make sure that they carry out their core functions and prosecute on behalf of the victims of those really awful crimes. So I'm excited about his appointment. On family life and Strasbourg, well, this this is a very interesting point and takes us to the heart of, if you like, of... of, um, in this country, we very much believe in the common law. We were touching earlier on how the government, it's perfectly proper, can, can take an argument to court, can test the extent of, of a statute and how the law is moves very quickly. Some of what I said about countries retaining a margin of appreciation, because there are differences, valid differences, between countries and the way things are done and the way people feel things ought to be done, Um, is is brought in to this discussion on the extent to which family life should be considered. But I do think it's possible for the European Court to continue to take into account real-life practices and remain up-to-date, though perhaps not as possible as our very flexible JR, uh, very quick access um, uh, testing of novel points of law. But, But the European Court does its job and it is able to manage. Um, and the last point oh, was about accountability of the different pillars of government. Well things um, wax and wane but it is important and that's why I wanted to um, make these remarks today really. It is important that the different parts of our constitutional settlement respect each other and are prepared to work together, though not entirely always on the same track, and are prepared to accept the checks and balances and the boundaries of each. And that's very much at at the heart of what I'm trying to say today.
0: Thank you, Victoria. I know that you have to go very shortly, so I'm just going to take one more question from the room over here, and then one from online.
2: (laughs) Hello. Hi, I'm (laughs) Nick Vinyl, I'm chair of the Bar Council, and I wanted to ask about ouster clauses. That is to say, a provision in primary legislation which seeks to remove judicial oversight from an area of executive action which had hitherto been subject to judicial review. Are ouster clauses compatible with the rule of law?
0: Thank you. And then one question from online. The rule of law requires legal certainty and that individuals know their rights. How is that compatible with the illegal migration bill which would apply retrospectively? to those who arrived after the 7th of March?
1: So sorry, would you read
0: that one again? Of course. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry. I didn't... <laughs> the rule of law requires legal certainty and that individuals know their rights. How is that compatible with the illegal migration bill, which would apply retrospectively to those who arrived after the 7th of March? Okay, I'm gonna run those two together, of if course. that's all right.
1: Um, and I'm afraid I'm probably not in a position to answer them as fully as you would like me to for the reason I set out in my remarks, which is that I'm simply not allowed as a law officer to, um, to give uh, specifics of any advice. Oh, I'm not even allowed to say whether or not I've advised the government, though I think it's to infer that I do scrutinise legislation before it's it's put before Parliament, so I'm not able to answer in any detail um, specifics relating to the Illegal Migration bill. but I am able to say in general terms, on retrospectivity, um, that is something which comes to the law officers for specific advice, generally, though I'm obviously not talking about the the particulars, and uh, retrospectivity because we, we are so concerned by legal certainty is not something we're prepared to grant lightly in any legislation. You have to look at the particular circumstances very, very carefully and make sure that you've interrogated the reasons, the policy reasons, why retrospectivity might be necessary or or desirable in a given set of circumstances. That might be because of the way that people would behave if a law were not retrospective, or it might be... um, well, there are many other arguments why it might be necessary. Ouster clauses. Um, I did touch in my remarks on on areas of which, which are not areas of government work which are not subject to judicial review. I think it's perfectly proper that we can continue to review which areas of government interaction. I was talking specifically on the international plane should be subject Mm -hmm. to judicial review. Um, But I don't think I can get into the specifics on any particular clause here. I am sorry, the IMB is before the um, House of Lords today and it's coming back to our house tomorrow. As you know, there was a recent court judgment which is being appealed by the government. Our application for permission to appeal has gone in. So this is very much in the public eye at the moment, and I don't think it would be proper for me to give the details of my advice, had there been any advice, of course.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we are um, sadly going to have to draw it to a close there. I'm sorry, I know there are lots more questions in the room. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us today and giving such a fascinating speech, and thank you to all of you in the audience for your brilliant questions, asked or not. Thank you.